All right, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We worked through a good portion of it last week, but we did so in a kind of a different way. And this week it's going to be more traditional. But let me go back, and because this is a situation in Romans 10, is one of those chapters that I don't really care if it comes across as a sermon. I talked about this last week. What I care more about is that when it's over, I want you to remember the point, right? And sometimes sermons get in the way of the actual text. Have you been listening to our uh, sermon reviews that we've been working on on Philippians 3.10 on the podcast? You'll know how utterly frustrated I've gotten reviewing sermons on Philippians 3.10 that they've done absolutely nothing to help us understand the text. They're good sermons, they're theologically sound, but you don't learn anything about Philippians 3.10, and if you think you did, you, you're, you're mistaken. So when it comes to Romans 10, I want to make sure we do not miss the emphasis here. So last week, we, I created two fake individuals, person A and person B. I should have given them names, but that's the best I could come up with, right? And person A, we describe them as a person who, well, they come to church every once in a while, right? Uh, they, they show up to church. They may read their Bible here or there. They're not really that committed to reading their Bible. They're not really committed to studying the Bible. They don't memorize any scripture. They will show up to church every once in a while. And uh, they, they also have a number of other negative issues. Uh, you know, getting drunk happens uh, somewhat frequently. Uh, maybe not all the time, but it happens. They, 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 they try not to do it, but they, but they, they, they get drunk. They, they struggle with, uh, maybe, uh, same-sex attraction. They, uh, they have lots of, uh, of issues that we would pertain to as being sinful and ungodly, and we would be like, man, that person is messed up. Person B, they're at church. Every Sunday, they read their Bible, they study their Bible, and they would be the person that would appear to be godly. And so we, I created these two situations. There was far more to it than that, but for time's sake. Um, and what I asked is, which one is righteous? And most people would say, person B is righteous. And everybody would say, person A is unrighteous. Now the problem with that is that views righteousness in an incorrect way. That views righteousness more so in the line of Catholicism than it does the Protestant Reformation. Because for us, what's the correct answer? Who is righteous in a biblical perspective? We don't look to the, what they do. We look to what? Have they put their faith in Jesus Christ? Because if they have trusted in Jesus Christ, guess what has happened? Righteousness imputed. Remember, what, what, what do we know about? What's the concept of an imputed righteousness? How does everybody understand? Please remember, these are two words. The entire Protestant Reformation hinges on this, okay? Imputed versus infused. What's the difference between imputed and infused? Everyone in this church better get this. Well, anyone who claims to be a not, anyone who claims to be a Christian who's not a Catholic should have this down, all right? What's the difference? Okay, imputed is accredited. It's where? Outside of me, right? Does it change me? No, imputed does not change. What does it change? You're standing before God. So, when by faith, I am given, a righteousness is imputed to me, accredited to my account. So, when I stand before God, what does God see? Christ's righteousness, which is what? Perfect. And we talked about this in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. You can read this. What's imputed to us? His active and passive obedience. Christ obeyed what? The entire law. So, in Christ... I've obeyed the entire law. And in Christ, I am holy. In Christ, I am perfect. In Christ, I am righteous. In Christ, I am not a sinner. In practice, I'm still a sinner. So that's why you can't just look and go, that's, they're righteous, they're not righteous. Doesn't mean we're excusing sin. We're establishing that righteousness for us is based off an imputed righteousness, not an infused. If it's an infused righteousness, what do I look for? 
I start walking up going, what did, what did you do last night? What did you do? I, what, I start looking at your life. Because if you've been infused with it, what should I see? Reality of it. But you can't judge that based off an imputed righteousness, right? That's where it's so weird that sometimes, and a lot of this I would not even realize until I decided to enroll in a Catholic university to pursue a degree in Catholic theology because I was so tired of Protestants saying things about Catholicism that was untrue. But it's when I started studying Catholicism, I'm like, wait a minute. I think, more, I think Protestants are better Catholics than Catholics. I'm like, we don't understand this. And I'm like, we have to be able to understand imputed versus infused. We have to understand that. But so many times in the Protestant world, how do we judge everything? By what people do. And what do we, then we turn around and say, but you're not saved by what you do. <laughs> Do you see how utterly confusing it gets? And you know what? It always scares me, especially for young people, is they grow up in Christianity and they think Christianity is nothing more than rules and do's and don'ts and a moral system. So they get older and they're like, well, I don't care. I don't like that moral system. So they reject it. Christianity is not a system of morality. Christianity is a system to save immoral people by imputing a righteousness to them that they cannot earn. You're rejecting, it's not just a moral, is there morality a part of Christianity? Yes. Does Christianity call for godly behavior? Yes. But the entire point of Christianity is that we can't keep the laws God gives. Therefore, we need to be saved by what? An imputed righteousness. Because if we could save ourselves by keeping the law, then we would do so, but we can't do so. So it's probably, this is probably very important for every Christian young person to know. Every person in Christianity is a hypocrite. Just know it now. Because when you get older, you try to throw it out. No, all Christians are hypocrites. Yes, we are. You know why? Because we believe that the law God gives is a law we cannot keep. Now, sometimes we don't profess that. So therefore, we have to be saved by someone else who kept it on our behalf. And who was that? Jesus Christ. And then by your faith, what happens? All of that obedience is yours. Does that excuse my disobedience? No. Doesn't excuse it. But it means we have to understand Christianity is not just like, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Christianity is, this is what you're supposed to do. You can't do it. He did it. Put your faith in him and his righteousness is given to you. That's, that's how we are saved. Not by how good of a person you can be. It's you're saved by how perfect Christ was. All right? We've tr- I've tried to make that as clear as I can in this chapter. Now, go to Romans 10. And now we're going to work through this and you're going to see this all play out. Because you know else, who else had a major issue with this concept? The nation of Israel had a major problem with this concept. They had a major problem with this concept. They did not understand it. Because what, what did uh, the nation of Israel understand? Law. They understood God's law. And they understood that thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do this. And they, under, and they were so worried about the law that their religious leaders went and did what? Made extra laws to protect you. They're like, okay, well, the Bible says you can't do this. All right, well, you need about 30 other laws to keep you far from getting anywhere close to that, right? And it, their intention was good. But for, in their minds, salvation was completely dependent upon what? Law keeping. Paul comes along, who was a Jew, right? Who's going to now teach a concept that the Jews are not even going to be able to understand. And it's going to be somewhat perplexing to them. And that's what we find in Romans chapter 10. Everybody, in Romans chapter 10, let's work through this. I don't know how far we're going to get, but let's see what we can do. What do we have in verse 1? Romans 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So what do we have going on in verse 1? Paul's desire and prayer. Paul's desire and prayer. Would everyone agree that's my outlines are never com- complicated, right? Right. What's the desire in verse one? Romans ten one. What's the desire? 
for Israel to be saved. What's the prayer? Do what? That may be saved, right? In other words, he desires it and he prays for it. Does the, does the verse express the desire? Okay. Does it express the prayer? All right. So does Romans 10, 1 have desire and prayer? Yes, okay. You see why I call that desire and prayer? Okay. Never make your outline. Remember, that's the goal of the outline is just to observe what's there. What is in Romans 10, 1? A desire and a prayer. Yes? Brother, my heart's desire, okay, and prayer, okay. You see, it's right there, okay. I know you'd be like, man, your, your, your outlines are too simple. No, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? It's just to get on paper what's there so that you can see desire and prayer. So far, so good, right? There's Paul's desire and prayer. Now, what happens in verse 2? Tell me what happens in verse 2. I know, I know y'all hate this. Well, you can't hate it. Right? That's what this, this church has been built on. Okay. Okay, well, verse, okay, the beginning of verse 2, there's a couple, I think, four words there, or five words. For I bear them record. For I bear them record. How does the NIV translate that? For I can testify. Right? What does it mean to testify? Declare something, right? Okay, you're gonna t- you're gonna testify. You're gonna make an observation. You're gonna declare something, correct? All right. So, what is Paul getting ready to make a declaration or a testi- testimony about? Them, them. Who's the them? Israel. Paul's getting ready to declare something about Israel, right? He's getting ready to say something about Israel. I wonder what it could be. What do you think it could be? I'm going to say this, all right, that Paul is about to describe or testify or give testimony to or give a witness to Israel's spiritual condition. So here's Paul's testimony, Paul's description of Israel's condition. If you don't like the word spiritual condition, you can say uh, condition, but the re- why would I say spiritual condition is what goes back in verse 1. What does he desire? That they be saved. So clearly it has something to do with their spiritual standing. Would you agree? All right, so you see why I went that direction? Okay, so he's going to describe spiritual's, spiritual condition. And what's the first thing he says about them? They have zeal. Just stop right there. They have a zeal. What does zeal mean? Fervor. Fervor. Passion. Excitement. Dedication. Fervor, right? Zeal. Do you, everybody knows that what that means, right? I mean, maybe. I bet you everyone has a zeal about something in here, right? It may be lunch, but you have a zeal about something. Correct? Right? Maybe. Okay, right now y'all don't look like you have zeal about anything. Okay, but okay. maybe outside of church your zeal shows up, okay? But there, there's an excitement. That's, that sounds like a good thing, Yes? But what does he go on to say about their zeal? Not according to knowledge. You can be passionate about something. You can have great zealousness for something. But you can be doing so purely off the base of ignorance. There's a zeal, but there's an ignorance. Does it say what their zeal is about? God. Man. That's depressing to me, right? I've met people like that. They have this great passion, this great zeal for God. And you're like, oh, wow. And then they start talking. You're like, oh, no. You're like, oh, no. Just don't talk. You're so confused. Don't talk. Don't. It, I, I don't know. Does that, it always bothers me because on one hand, you love their zeal. You just wish they would have some knowledge, Right? Uh, it's great for someone to have passion, but no knowledge. So what are they confused? So what would be the obvious good question as a Bible student? What knowledge are they lacking? They're Israel. Man, they, they should know a lot. I mean, they, you think they would know probably more than most of us, yes? Especially know more than the Gentiles. Agreed? 
They have the law, the prophets. They've had, they have everything. They should know more than everyone. What's the next thing? What are they ignorant of? Verse, next verse, someone just said it. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. Oh, wait a minute. They have a, they have a zeal, but the zeal is without knowledge, and they're ignorant of God's righteousness. Is that not confusing to you? Because what would, you, what would be your first thought? They know about God's righteousness, right? Who was given the Ten Commandments? Who was given Leviticus? Israel. The prophets. Israel. Right? What, don't they know God's righteousness? They should. So how can they be ignorant of God's righteousness? Let's continue with their condition. So let's go through their condition. They have a zeal about God, but it's a zeal without knowledge. They're ignorant of righteousness. And then here's, here's this really is the key of their spiritual condition. Going about to establish their own righteousness. They are working to establish their own righteousness. Does everyone know what that means? To establish your own righteousness. How do you establish your own righteousness? You establish your own righteousness by doing righteous things. So how could I establish my own righteousness? Okay, let's see. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm I'm going to avoid physical relationships till marriage. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to have lust. See, I'm not going to do drugs. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm not going to watch movies that people tell me I'm not supposed to watch. I'm not going to use the bad language. Okay, I'm going to do all of that stuff. Woo! Man, good. That's establishing what kind of a righteousness. All right, let me make it very clear. Where, where does that leave you before God? Still a sinner. You take a lot of kids raised in the church, you, you give them the Ten Commandments, and you say, what would, what, ha- what would be your relationship with God if you kept all the Ten Commandments? You know what most kids raised in a church would say? I'd be saved. And when I hear a Protestant or a non-Catholic kid say that, I just want to fall over and cry. I understand if a Catholic kid said that. Do you understand that if you kept every commandment in the Bible perfectly, you would still go to hell? Do you know why? One, we're guilty in whom? Adam, so we're already, we're already up the creek right there, okay? Number two, what is inside of you? Sinful nature, okay? Number three, even if you kept the law, what kind of righteousness would that be? A self-righteousness or a human righteousness. You know what God says about your human righteousness? That's filthy rags. And you look up the Hebrew there, that's, some, that's not a pleasant sight. Okay? You're, you're right. The, if you kept everything, you would still be considered unrighteous in the sight of God. Now, you may be able to walk around and everybody in church may go, whoa, that's the person everybody wants to be like. Not if it's a self-righteousness. They went to establish their own Righteousness. And I know sometimes as Christian parents, we've made the mistake, and it's not that we intended to, but we want to teach the kids right and wrong, but they just, in their, the way kids remember stuff is always way different than, I mean, you know it from your own childhood. There's a certain period where you think back to your childhood and you remember it one way, but as you get a little older, you kind of go, well, maybe it wasn't exactly like, you may kind of get a little bit of different perspective, right? But in many kids who are raised in a Christian home, all they know is, do, don't, 
do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And I will, I can never do enough right, and I can never not do enough wrong. Therefore, forget Christianity. And it's like, no, no, you missed the whole point of it. That's not what saves you. Because we almost want them to establish a righteousness of their own. And why, why do we have a tendency to push that? Why do you think as, a par- as parents we have a tendency to do that? I think our motives are pure, right? Don't we believe that by following the, the rules that God has set typically protects your life from a lot of really bad things? I mean, I know it, this is really deep, and I'm glad you come to church to learn this. If you never drink alcohol, you can never become an alcoholic. Whoa, that's deep. Right? So trying to keep your kids away from that, in many cases, doesn't even have anything to do with Christianity. Right? They, they're going to attach it to your Christianity. But it's like, forget Christianity. I don't want you to be an alcoholic. Right? I know this is a shock. If you never do drugs, you can never be addicted. Isn't that deep? Right? So, but again... Kids, in their mind, they connect it with your Christianity. It may have nothing to do with your Christianity. I just don't want you to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. Is that too much to ask? Right? That's a pretty good thing. And, and if, you, if you'd like, you know, I can, you know, I worked 22 years in the medical world. You know, just spend some time trying to help someone recover from drug addiction or alcoholism and watch the, the, the horrible things they have to go through to overcome it. It's not a pleasant sight. You know, or you just for a field trip one day, take your kids to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or a, or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and let them listen to the stories of people who were destroyed their lives with alcohol or, or narcotics. They're going to probably go, man, that's bad. So there's lots of things in the Bible. They're like, if you don't do that, things will be better. You don't end up in prison. Isn't that amazing? You don't end up in jail. Right? You don't end up with so many of the things the Bible tells you to do just is better for you. Just in the most atheist, forget God in just the most atheistic way. But their minds, they just reduce it to rules. And somehow we have to make them say, no, 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 no. We're not trying to tell you to go establish a righteousness on your own. Your righteousness will never be good enough. What we want you to do is to believe in Christ so that you can have his imputed righteousness. That's what we, but it's hard to find that balance, isn't it? I I don't have it figured out, okay? I don't have it figured out because it's, because on one hand, you're afraid if I just focus on the imputed, they're going to be running around burning the houses down and who knows what, right? So then you're worried about that. So then you spend over here going, rules, 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 and they still are burning houses down. You're like, well, that didn't work. Okay, sometimes you don't know what to do because I don't know if you know this, being a parent, it's a no-win situation, right? You're going to lose no matter what, okay? So it's just the way it works. But we don't, the one thing we don't want them to do is walk away with a wrong under, misunderstanding of Christianity. And sometimes it's not that they misunderstand it, not because we purposely tried to help them misunderstand it. It's just sometimes the negative effects of being raised in a Christian home. Isn't it weird that sometimes being raised in a Christian home is far more damaging to a kid's perception of Christianity than not being raised in a Christian home? And then you'll hear them talk and you're like, what church did you go to? You're like, what church did you go to? Wait, I know what church you went to. I was the pastor. We never taught that. What are you talking about? What's wrong with you? No, you don't do that. But you get the idea, right? It's confusing, is it not? Well, here, Israel's really confused. After all the things that they have seen and learned from God, they, they, their entire conclusion was what? Establish our righteousness by doing righteous acts. That's what they concluded. And they tried to base their entire relationship with God on the basis of what? Works. There's no way to get around it. All right, so... Their, uh, Israel's spiritual condition. What's the first thing? They have a zeal for God. Second, a zeal without knowledge. Next, what do they try to do? They're ignorant. Everybody see that? Okay. Then what? They try to establish their own righteousness. Next thing about their spiritual condition. 
They did not submit themselves unto the righteousness of God. They did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, you, and I think in your mind, you're going to be thinking, well, because they didn't obey. No, 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 no. That's not the focus here. Right? That's not the focus. But I, I don't know if you realize this. You could never fulfill it even if you tried. Remember how it works? If you break one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So that means you're never going to be, you're always going to be what? Guilty. You're always going to be guilty. What a system. But the system is designed that way. Because what is the system supposed to make you do? Fall on the ground, rip your clothing, put on sackcloth, throw up ashes in the air and say, I'm, I'm undone. I can't do anything. I, there's nothing I can do. I, I cannot do this. And once you say that I cannot do this, then, then you hear from the gospel, someone did. And that is to focus on Christ. He's describing their condition. Does he continue to describe their condition? Is verse 4 a continuation of... No, it's something different, right? Why do, we, why, why do I tell you to... Why do I ask you that? Because that tells you what? We have a different point in our outline, yes? Okay, all right? So once the subject matter... Once the thing changes, then that makes you realize, oh, something else is going on. So what do we have? Number one, Paul's desire and prayer. That's verse 1. Verse 2 and 3 gives us what? Israel's spiritual condition. What is their condition? Zeal for God, but it's a zeal without knowledge ignorance, trying to establish their own righteousness and would not submit to the righteousness of God. Everybody see that? That's Israel's condition. Make it very clear. Everyone in this room can be guilty and be in that same spiritual condition. We can all find ourselves there. And guess who is in the most danger of finding themselves in that condition? The kid raised in a Christian home or the kid raised the way I was raised? The Christian home. I, I, I had no danger of any of this, okay? I had no danger of this, all right? That, that, this was not on my radar of a problem, okay? All right? I was breaking too many laws and doing too many wrong things, okay? I was doing too many wrong things for this to even be an issue, right? For those who were, for the adults who were raised in a Christian home, did you find yourself maybe in this camp in some way, shape, or form? Right? Sarah's shaking her head yes. Right? Okay? I don't know how the rest of you were raised, but yeah. I mean, this was not... I didn't have a problem here. When I heard I was a sinner, I'm like, you don't even know half of it. Okay? Like, really? You think that's all I've done? Okay, well, whatever. Okay? Right? I, that's, that's, that's how I was. That's where I was. And they're completely different. And sometimes it's easier to come from that. Because you come into it knowing, I'm messed up. I'm messed up. So I knew I was messed up. It, no one had to convince me of that. Right? Does that make sense? So what happens in verse 4? What starts in verse 4? You can look at verse 4 and verse 5. You can just look at it and see what, what happens in this section. What do you think Paul's doing in this section? Okay, all right. I'm going to just call this, verse, in verse, starting in verse 4, we'll have to see where it stops. I'm just going to say law and righteousness, or Paul's instruction about law and righteousness, because the words law and righteousness are used quite a few times in the next following verses. All right? So that's why I'm going to... Because if I say anything else, then I feel like I'm giving an interpretation. Does that make sense? So here, we know it's Paul because Paul's the author, Right? Okay, and we know Paul's offering instruction, so I think it's fair to say Paul's instruction on law and righteousness. But I think it's very fair to say, what is he ultimately trying to do here? Correct the bad idea. You could call it Paul's correction, but the correction involves a discussion about law and righteousness. All right? Everything ready? All right, here we go. Verse 4. What's the first thing he wants them to understand? Well, 
for Christ. Let's just stop right here. I love that. Immediately, here's your wrong understanding, and immediately what stands in the way of your wrong understanding? Christ. Christ stands completely in the way of this wrong understanding. Because you have to ask yourself, what did Christ come to do? What, the answer to a lot of kids raised in the Christian home is that Christ simply came to die, right? To give me forgiveness so that I have an opportunity to try to be good enough to get to heaven. No. Christ came to do a lot of things. What were some of the things he came to do? He came to die, obviously. To fulfill God's will. This is very important. To keep God's law. What did he say about the law of God? That it was going to be fulfilled, right? Not one jot or tittle is going to go away until it's been fulfilled. Who fulfilled it? Christ did. He fulfilled it. The law had been there from the minute it was given. The law had been saying, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And from the time of, let's go from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, had anyone figured out how to do it? No. Christ steps in and what does he do? Keeps it. Fulfills it. Now why is that important? Oh, that's super important. Right? Because I can't keep it. So I need someone who can keep it for me. That's good news, right? But I've already broken it. So I need someone also to do what? Pay the penalty for it. All right, so I need someone to pay the penalty and someone to keep it so that I can be forgiven for my breaking of it, but I can be given the obedience to it. So I just love the, the fact that he says for Christ, and then notice this, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. All right, so the first part of his instruction is what? That the law, or that Christ, is the end of what? Read it specifically. The end of the law for righteousness. How does the NIV translate it? In other words, Christ is the end of the law. In what way is he the end of the law? That you no longer seek righteousness from the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Why? Because the minute I believe in him, I don't, am not obtaining a righteousness that comes from law keeping. What am I obtaining? A righteousness that comes from faith. Does everybody see that? So for everyone who's a Christian, what is my relationship to the law now? It's not the thing that, grant, that gives me righteousness. I'm already righteous. So I don't look to it for what? Righteousness. I don't look to it for salvation. I don't look to it in any of those ways. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. What's the next thing he says? Okay. To everyone that believeth. Making sure. How does Christ become the end of the law? You have to believe. If you don't believe, where, what's your standing? If you don't believe, you're still under the law. And what does the law say? Guilty, 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 guilty. Everyone without Christ is guilty. Everyone in Christ is no longer guilty because our guilt's been paid for and now we are perfectly righteous because of his righteousness. Not because we're better than anyone else. 2,000 years of church history have shown that the church, in many cases, we're not better than people outside of the church. We may, we may change one sin for a different sin, but there's still sin. You may look at the world and go, man, look, they're doing this and this and this and this, and look at the church. I mean, look at the church at Corinth. Was it not an absolute train wreck? Yeah, it was a mess. 2,000 years of church history. I mean, we could go all, I could go all day on all the things that's been done in the church. You know. What's the next thing he says? Next, so verse 4, he goes with Christ, right? Now he goes from Christ and he moves backwards, right? So now he goes to 
Moses. Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. So now he's going to back up and say, okay, let's consider Moses. And what did Moses describe? It says right there in that verse. Okay. Moses described a righteousness that came by the law. We don't look to Moses, we look to Christ. But he's referring, he's speaking specifically to the Jews. They know this. Hey, remember Moses? They're like, we remember Moses. We remember that law. We have it memorized, right? Remember, for many Orthodox Jews, what do they do? They have the law around their arm, like in a little leather band, right? And then a little box that goes right here. They have the law of God right here, yes? Okay? They have all kinds of different things to remember the law of God. You know, they, they know the Ten Commandments. They know the law. But they're looking to that law for what purpose? Righteousness. So he says, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. All right, so he's going to go to how Moses described it. And then what's the next words? That the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Is that a quote from somewhere? It's a quote from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy what? 30.12. Go to Deuteronomy 30.12. So we can at least get the quote. Now he said, the way Paul references this, he's referencing it in what way? That his audience knows it, right? Okay, Leviticus, all right? Leviticus, that's, that's fine. Right. Leviticus what? Okay, the fact that it's Leviticus should just make you worry. Okay. But Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5, right? Being, this is, look at verse 18, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses. Speak unto the children of Israel. So clearly this is a reference to Israel and Moses, right? Verse 5, ye, ye, if I can read correctly, ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. What is Moses telling them to do? To live in them. You got to live by them. You got to live according to them. Right? You got to, your life will be keeping the law. Now, what, what do we know uh, about this? We, we, we can read that and go, man, that's great. What do we know happens from the time of that law being given in Leviticus till Jesus comes? Israel never kept it. Never. That begins to tell you something, right? If they never kept it, come on, someone ask the question. Come on. If I grabbed one of the teenagers right now and told them to do something, right? Like if I said that I brought them up here and said, all right, here you go. You got 15 minutes. Recite every verse in the Bible. Go. What would they say? Are you stupid? I can't do that. What are are you doing? Right? They would basically say, what's the point of you asking me to do something that you know can't do, huh? So when, I, when we read this, don't you kind of go, well, then what was the point of the law? Isn't that a good question? That's a good question. Act like you're a teenager. What's the point of this? Nobody can keep it. Why are you giving me these rules? Right? That's a good question. That's not a bad question. Do, do we get an answer? Listen to this. Everything about the Jewish religion pointed to the coming Messiah, their sacrifices, priesthood, temple services, religious festivals, and covenants. Their law told them they were sinners in need of a Savior. But instead of letting the law bring them to Christ, they worshipped their law, rejected their Savior. The law was a signpost pointing the way, but it could never take them to their destination. The law cannot give righteousness. It only leads the sinner to the Savior who can give righteousness. All right? Paul quoted from the Old Testament to prove to his readers that they did not even understand their own law. He began with Leviticus 18.5, which states the purpose of the law 
If you obey it, you live is another way to translate it. If you obey it, you live. So like you didn't even understand it. Because if you ever heard a rule say, if you obey it, you will live, they should immediately started asking questions, we got a problem. And isn't it interesting? I, I don't know if you find it interesting. Leviticus, what does Leviticus start off with? The book of Leviticus. Oh, come on, everybody knows this. Especially in this church, we've taught Leviticus so many times. No, no, it starts with something specific, though. It gives you a number of things. Sacrificial system is outlined in great detail, is it not? Isn't that interesting? Now, here's, hey, hey, guys, here's the law. If you keep it, you live. All right, all right, we're going to keep it. Oh, here's all these sacrifices you need to make. Well, why, why do I need all these sacrifices? They're not going to keep it. He was giving them both, which is hilarious to me that they didn't get it, right? Hey, it's like I'm giving you two concepts here, and then you just kind of step back and go, I wonder how long it's going to take them to figure this out. I wonder how long it's going to take them. I do that to you guys a lot of times, right? I'll throw something out, and I'll just kind of wait and go, okay, well, maybe maybe I'll say something at this point because I haven't figured it out yet, right? He, he gives them the law, and it says, do this and you'll live. Well, at some point, they should have said, well, if we got the law, and if I do it, I live, then why do I got to kill an animal? Why do I got to cut the throat of an animal and spread its blood all over the place? That seems ridiculous, right? But those, that sacrifice was, why did it have to be, why did that have to occur? In fact, one of those offerings was called a what offering? Oh, wait, how could that possibly be? And then, the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest going in. Why, why did this have to happen? To, in a sense, cover their sin. Me, seeming to indicate that for every law there was, there needed to be a sacrifice because they were constantly going to be in violation of the law, which should have made them start thinking, maybe we're misunderstanding the reason the law exists. Yes, Paul is kind of challenging them, you don't get it. Go to Galatians really quick. We're going to run out of time. Go to Galatians. I believe it's chapter 3. If I get this wrong, well, it's your fault. Okay, no. All right, here we go. Okay, yeah, Galatians 3.10. Everybody there? For as many as are of the works of the law, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's Galatians 3.10. Is that a reference to anything in the Old Testament? Okay, Deuteronomy 27. That's when you said Deuteronomy. I swear, I thought you were going. Deuteronomy 27, what verse? 2726, can you read it since I don't have it open up there? Deuteronomy 2726. I'll come up here where the people can hear on the online. Deuteronomy 2726. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. All right. Cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything in the law. I don't know who would say amen to that, okay, but okay, all right. That would be not, that's not a good thing. Right? Here's the law. What happens if you break any of it? Cursed. Man, can anyone look at what, what would you, what would your attitude be in that system? There you go. That's what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear a rebellious attitude. That's the right attitude. No, because that's exactly what I would. I'd be like, what? What's the? Forget this, okay? I mean, look, if I break one, I'm going to be guilty of all. I'm going to go break all of them. I'll, I'll teach courses on how to break the law the best way possible. I will be, I will give new lectures, right? I'm like, hey, you've only broken 15. Spend the weekend with me. We'll make sure all of them are broken, right? Because it would just seem like, what's the point? 
So what's the, could the point have ever been to keep it? The point had to be that it was supposed to show something. What, could, what do you think it was supposed to show? Right. If I, if I was to... If I, was to, if I was to grab two of the teenagers, right? Okay, and I bring a teenager to this side, and I said, okay, so how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. And while they're talking to me, I just pour out sugar all over the floor. Just all over the floor, right? They probably look at me. I'm like, hey, I need you to pick that up. After a little while, what do you think their attitude would be? What? Well, why? Okay, good, good, good question. That's all. The why question is always my favorite, right? That's always question everything. That's my motto. But beyond why, I think you would start saying, I, I can't do this. It's impossible, right? Could you pick up every grain of, no, you'd just be like, this, this is dumb, right? And if that, another, I brought up another teenager here, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I'm just pouring sugar all over the floor. And then they get, and I said, hey, I need you to pick that up. I hand them a vacuum cleaner. This person's going to be like, that's not fair. That's not right. Does everybody understand that? Well, the law is given for you to go, I can't do it. But as soon as you say, someone did it for you, Immediately, this side is going to scream what? Not fair, not right. Does that, does that make sense? This is the kind of situation Paul is dealing with. Now, go back to Romans 10. Don't forget that passage in Galatians and don't forget that passage in Deuteronomy, all right? Because those are very... Okay, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to bring this to an end before uh, we lose everything, all right? All right, Romans chapter 10. All right, here we go. For Moses described the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Now look at verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go into this next part because it's already 10 after and my battery in the laptop's going to die. Because this is going to get really confusing. All right? Because he's getting ready to quote from the Old Testament again, and it's going to be all discombobulated and trying to figure out what's going to happen. But let me ask you this question. Do you think if whenever Israel was confronted, you've got to keep the law or you're going to be cursed, what do you think their attitude or their response was normally? What did you say? Well, Israel wouldn't have said that. I, I, I wish they would have said that. What do you think Israel would have said? We did it! We did it! They have a hard time acknowledging... They can't. They're really good at saying, oh, 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 look, look, look. Hey, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. What? Are you, come on, come on. She needs to die. And so what did Jesus say? Anyone who doesn't have sin. Jesus was constantly pointing out their sin and they did not like it. They were good at pointing out everyone else's sin. Because let me make it very clear. When you go and establish your own righteousness, you become an arrogant, condescending jerk who thinks you're better than everyone else and all you can do is see everyone else's faults, but you can't see your own. That goes away really quick when you realize that you, you are just as guilty as the worst sinner. The church has suffered with this problem for 2,000 years. There's always those sins in the world that we get all upset about. We run around going, oh, I can't believe the world's doing this. We've got to stop it. We've got to condemn it. How dare all of you? And I'm like, you better be careful because maybe that's not your sin. But you've got sin that's just as bad in the eyes of God. Because, guess what? You take two sins, right? A small white lie. Homosexuality. Guess what both of them deserve? Curse. 
we kind of make an excuse for the small white lie, right? Because we see righteousness in what perspective? Human perspective. And what do we have a tendency to do? Are there sins that you hate? Oh, yeah. Are there sins that you don't understand? Yeah. Right? Are there sins that may disgust you? Yeah. Does that make them worse than yours? No. We don't like that. That's how come this morning in Jude, I wanted to look at that verse that he, he likens rebellion to witchcraft. We would see witchcraft as something horrible, right? When I was a teenager, I used to hop the gate of the Buffalo Gap Cemetery and find a freshly dug grave. And I brought my Ouija board, my satanic Bible, and I would sit on top of the grave trying to contact the dead spirit. I think most of you would drive by going, bad, really bad, really bad, really bad, 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 bad. Kids, don't hang out with him. Agreed? But I bet you that you would still have been a sinner, right? Just very different kinds of sin. Yes? I would have thought my sin was more fun. 